This boy and girl are going to be well equipped when the time comes to take their places as worthy members of adult society. Aloha, y'all. This is Daniel Eisenman, the host of the Breaking Normal podcast, where my guests are all invited based on the frequency of synchronicity and all trailblazers and the breaking of all things normal. Aloha. Today, I don't even know. I was going to tell you what the date is, but I don't even know the date. I imagine it's like, oh, I think I know. It's March 25th. The reason I know that is because March 26th is tomorrow, and that is the day for the second to Breaking Normal meetup where we will be having a maskless meetup under a membership model here in Boulder, Colorado. If you're around and want to be a part of it and somehow you hear this, or you could be a part of the next one, just hit me up. The best way to reach out to me is probably uh, email daniel at breakingnormal.com and or Instagram messaging me. I'm actually doing this intro live on Instagram right now, so we'll see if anyone has any questions they want to include in it. But guess who I'm introducing? I'm introducing a dangerous, he's dangerous, he's a dangerous figure, um, an author of two of my favorite, most impactful books that I would be hesitant to even recommend. Like I just did a podcast with my friend Ben Azadi for Keto Camp. He interviewed me and I was like, I would be hesitant since he's in like in a happy relationship. I'd be hesitant to recommend Sex at Dawn. And you might understand more when, why, when I talk to Christopher Ryan here, that's the guest, Christopher Ryan. And because of his book, Civilized to Death which came out before COVID, which is all so fascinating to me. If you want to know my opinions on this situation that we're facing as a culture and the whole mass tricks of the matrix, I decided to upload a live IGTV today on this date. You can check it out. I think it's like no more face diaper fashion advice, please. Something like that. <laughs> um, but yeah, I'm so honored to be introducing Chris to the show because he's a guy that like was just so impactful on me and this mysterious like ethers that I didn't know if I would ever connect to. So to have this conversation with him is a real honor and for you to be joining us is a real honor. And as I mentioned in the episode alluding to the bison liver, the tribe vitamins, I think to honor that, let me at least read one review. I've read some reviews before. Oh, and by the way, for the outro for this podcast, let me include the most dangerous chapter of Breaking Normal, the naked exercise chapter. I forget what I call it. I think it's called Feature Your Flaws in the book. Hey, you can get Breaking Normal right now. It's a great freaking book. I've started Psycho-Cybernetics recently. It reminds me a lot of Breaking Normal. I'm like, who is this guy? Mr. Maltz? Got to get to know more about this person. We think a lot alike. Anywho, um, I'll include that as the outro. So get ready for that at the end of the conversation with Christopher. And before I begin that, let me, like I said, least read one review of Tribe Vitamins. I will. Let me read my mom's. Let me read my mom's. I see my mom's on the website in honor to her and the archetype of her. And uh, just like being the queen bee of certain colonies and um, so powerful. And the podcast with her, it seems like it's a lot of y'all's favorite. Maybe the fit, the best podcast so far is the one with my mom. Have you checked it out yet? I think it's called like my mom breaking the new normal and saving lives. Something like that. It's great. She is so on fire. But let me read her testimony about Tri-Vitamins and let's introduce Chris. Here it goes. It's called New Beginnings. She titles it. Interesting. The experience that I have had since... 
beginning less than two months ago with taking tri-vitamins has been so life-transforming. I literally have gone through maybe the most difficult days of my life all and maintaining not only healthy functioning physically, but excelling in health, spirit, and mental sharpness. I'm so excited to discover such a natural, pure supplement that can make me have the best life possible. Oh, I never want to be without a plentiful supply of bison liver, but also elk liver that I have now added to my daily ritual. Thanks be to God for these wonderful vitamins. Oh, thank you, Mom. Should I break normal and lie to y'all and read one more review just in case people are skeptical that I'm only leaving my mom's review? All right, let me just read the one right below it. Zach says, five stars. I'm thrilled with the results I've gotten supplementing with bison liver. My energy levels are off the charts. I've noticed clearer, healthier skin and a better overall general sense of well-being. I highly recommend these for anyone interested. I would say that's probably the most common testimony. I have gotten enough of these miraculous testimonies from people like my mom that I'm like, we're going to keep going with this project. This is just the beginning. And then I've gotten several other ones that are more that overall stamina, like the ultimate multivitamin type of experience. So get yours today. Get the subscription. You can get a discount. Get them every month. Keep microdosing on America's original multivitamin, my friends. And enjoy this podcast that I think will also influence you to do that and even more. And enjoy that outro. Keep breaking normal. Peace. All right, y'all. Big day here. Tight window. I'm going to see if I can squeeze the most out of it. I'm here with Christopher Ryan, author of Sex at Dawn and Civilized to Death. Two of my favorite audiobooks. Um, that's how I listen to them, how I consume them. And they're really uh, paradigm shifters. I, uh, for Sex at Dawn, it really got me to question the whole idea of a monogamous relationship being the only thing to strive for um, in so many ways, definitely because of the research indicated by bonobos and chimpanzees. And even the difference between those, I got really intrigued by um, from that book. And then Civilized to Death coming out. I think that came out. I listened to that right before I heard about COVID. Is that true? When was that published? Uh, yeah, it was published, uh, August of 2020, I think the hardback. And I think the audio came out a little after that. So 2019 or 2020, 2019, 2019. That's yeah. right. Yeah. That's right. That's Cause right. I think yeah. I caught the C word, um, December, 2019. <laughs> so All I right. just finished yeah. that book. Um, I yeah, it's funny when I was writing it, I kept thinking, cause I was, I was very delayed, you know, um, I blew through a bunch of deadlines and I kept thinking the, the real deadline is I need to get this book published before the world ends. <laughs> I just made it. Well, you know, the world, it did end culturally in a lot yeah. of ways. And we're in that mm -hmm. transition. I mean, what do you think about that as a premonition or I would like to, I would like to hear you expound upon that even more. Is there, did you have a feeling something like this was happening or coming? Um, and uh, thank you for being on the show, man. I'm stoked to be here. It's a real honor. You're a truly inspiring person and your writing is profoundly uh, game-changing and breaking normal. So thanks again for being on the show today. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I, I wouldn't say I had a premonition, you know, that there was going to be a viral outbreak or anything, but you know, the book is largely about the unsustainability of, 
Western civilization as a approach to life on the planet, you know, ranging from ecological stuff to medical stuff, to social stuff, to economics, you know, the whole thing is just, um, makes no sense. And, uh, so, you know, on that level, I guess, uh, I was expecting a crack at any time, you know, I didn't know it would be economic or, or viral or, uh, you know, a nuclear accident or what have you, but it seems like in f- many, many different ways, Western civilization is declining, uh, slowly or, um, you know, catastrophically depending on how things play out, but there are a lot of vulnerabilities in the system. Well, um, I'm curious where in the heavens are you right now? Uh, what are you most hopeful about with our civilization and what are you most (laughs) concerned about with our civilization? Uh, when you say where in the heavens, you mean physically, like on the planet? Um, yeah, so as far as where I am, I'm in a place called Crestone, Colorado, which is a tiny little town at the base of uh, the Sangre de Cristo mountain range. Um, very interesting little town. I just bought some land here and um, some friends have moved to town. So we're sort of setting up a little, I don't know, little uh, hunter-gatherer community here. Um, And what I'm hopeful about, uh, I guess I'm hopeful that people are using the crisis of COVID uh, as a learning opportunity to see that, um, you know, some of the things that I wrote about in Civilized to Death, um, are already happening and aren't off in the future somewhere. So I'm hopeful that people are using this opportunity to get some insights into how vulnerable they are if they're dependent upon the grid, you know. And um, one of the reasons that I'm here in this town is that a lot of people here are growing their own food. They have solar arrays. They... um, are trying to be as um, self-sufficient as possible. And I think that, uh, of course, community is a huge aspect of being, um, when I say self-sufficient, I don't mean individualistic hermits living off by themselves in the mountains. I mean, forming a community in which you feel safe and embedded and that you can uh, help people and, and receive help from them. Wow. That's amazing that you're pretty close by because I'm in Boulder right now. Mm. And um, I've heard of Crestone from a lot of people in amazing ways that, first of all, I've heard it has like more spiritual centers per square block than anywhere else in the world or something like that. Do, do, do you know what I'm alluding to there? Is that, have you found that to be true? Yeah. Yeah. Well, Crestone has a, an interesting background Um it was a a tiny little mining community and then the mines shut down, I don't know, 60, 70 years ago, something like that. Um, And so it was just a few people, I think 50 people or something lived here. And uh, in the eighties, a very wealthy couple ended up owning a ranch here with, uh, I don't know, thousands of acres of land. And, 
um, a guy who had been living in the mountains, sort of a hermit, came to their door and said, uh, glad you're here. We were expecting you. Uh, this has all been prophesized. And they invited this guy in and he explained that the prophecy was that this wealthy couple would buy all this land and then they would grant tracts of land to various world religions who would then set up spiritual centers here and sort of demonstrate that the world's religions could live together peacefully and cooperatively. Um, anyway, that's the story. And uh, the woman is still alive. The, the husband died years ago, but she's still around. And that's what they did. They set up a nonprofit uh, foundation and the foundation accepted applications and ended up granting land to uh, Tibetan Buddhists and uh, um, Carmelite nuns and uh, Shinto from Japan and uh, Hindus from India and all, all these different uh, religions. And they built retreat centers here. And so it's very interesting. Uh, it's a very small town, but you can be sitting at the cafe and there would be, you know, some uh, Zen monks who just came in from Tibet sitting at the table next to you. It's a bizarre combination of small town and global. I'm going to come visit the town. It's been on my radar for a while. We've been dealing with a lot of snow. So once the uh, roads are a little bit more clear, I might see up there. It sounds amazing. I've also heard there's pretty uh, cool hot springs up there. I'm a bit of a spring water connoisseur. Yeah, there are two hot springs like, within 10 miles of town. Wow. Wow. Sounds, sounds quite magical. Um, and you said a hunting gathering community. Are you into hunting? Have you started hunting? What, what's, your, what's your experience and endeavors around that? Uh, I went hunting for the first time since I was a kid. Uh, like I grew up in Pennsylvania where hunting's a big thing. And I hunted a couple times with friends when I was a kid, but then um, I hadn't done anything until last year. I was invited on two hunting trips uh, in Hawaii. And one of them, I just went along at the last minute because one of the guys had dropped out and uh, offered me his spot. And I really just went to, I'd never been to Hawaii. So I went to fly around in helicopters and uh, check out the islands. And then a couple months later, I was on a trip with some friends uh, hunting uh, wild pigs with a uh, bow and arrow. And um, so that was interesting. Uh, I'm not a big hunter, uh, honestly. When I said uh, hunting gathering community, what I meant was trying to replicate some of the social uh, benefits of a small scale hunter gatherer community in the modern world. So uh, sharing resources to some extent, you know, like uh, got a bunch of friends here in this town and uh, you know, we're, we're like, well, we don't, we don't all need to have our own tools. Let's just shut up, uh, set up a tool shed and leave our tools there. And so whoever, you know, needs tools, we share them. And, uh, you know, a trailer, a utility trailer to haul stuff around, we can share it. So we're, you know, coordinating in a lot of ways. Um, some of the friends have chickens, so, you know, give us eggs and, you know, we give them uh, whatever we have. So it's sort of, I don't necessarily mean that we're actually off hunting, although some people, a lot of people around here do hunt elk. 
Um, but uh, like there's a yak farm down the road and a friend of mine works at the yak farm. And so he gets us yak meat, <laughs> which is interesting. Um, but that's what I mean. Just sort of uh, interdependent social organization. That sounds amazing. I mean, I, I have had a company called International Tribe Design where we've been playing around with these weekend experiences of the art of designing a tribe so that if we find ourselves in a long-term opportunity like the year in, that we'll kind of know our archetype and how we thrive and how we synergize within that tribe. And I find this also fascinating and amazing. Um, and the hunt in Hawaii, that's I've actually gone hunting in Hawaii for uh, wild pigs with dogs. Is that how you did it when you were, or what was the setup there? No, it was just uh, archery that we had uh, compound bows and uh, a guide who uh, took us out on private land and uh, yeah, no dogs. I have a friend who, who did it with dogs. Um, yeah. He said it was pretty intense. They, uh, he was with local guys and I guess the, the dog sort of like held down the pig and he had to go and kill the pig with a knife or a spear or something. It was pretty intense. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the day we did it, the hunter we were with is like such, it's such like what people, what I didn't think hunters were growing up in Georgia. We, uh, the, the pigs were, we, the dogs caught three different pigs and he didn't take a shot on any of them. One, because they were a mom and the other two, because they were too small. Mm-hmm. So, and then he ended up gifting us like a half a, a pig that he had shot from a previous time um and it was interesting because it was a, a jungle pig meaning they had eaten many more fruits and versus like the mountain pigs that more forage on like tubers and allegedly those jungle pigs are extra tasty so it's pretty mm. fascinating culture i mean i remember being in, I've, I've been in hawaii quite a bit and there's guys that literally walk down the street with a knife and their pit bull and will offer the services to these like farmers and ranchers to remove the pigs from the property. Yeah. It's pretty, pretty crazy. Yeah. One of the things I'm intrigued by, especially around the topic of eating meat is um, the, just the comparisons of the structures, the societal structures of bonobos and chimpanzees and how they interact with each other sexually. And what, what, what do you think that means uh, for humans um, and what do you take from that? And do you still stand by what you wrote about in Sex at Dawn around those topics or has anything shifted? I'd be curious around uh, for you to talk about that. Sure. Um, humans, chimps and bonobos are more closely related than the Indian elephant is to the African elephant. Um, we if we were looking at this purely from a scientific perspective and in terms of genetics and last common ancestor and that sort of thing, humans, chimps, and bonobos would all be considered a subspecies of chimpanzee. Uh, We're that closely related. So uh, there are strong uh, similarities between us physiologically and um, one can argue that the physiology and the sexual behavior are reflections of one another. Um, well, it's beyond argument. That's, that's simply a fact. The, the shape of our 
genitals, the fact that our testicles are outside our bodies rather than inside, the differences in um, average size and weight between men and women, males and females, um, all of these things are indicative of uh, sexual behavior over evolutionary time. Um, So we have similarities in these ways, which suggest similarities in our behavior over evolutionary time. Um, And chimps and bonobos are both uh, promiscuous maters, meaning that um, the scientific term is multi-male, multi-female, meaning that both males and females have multiple sexual partners uh, pretty regularly. And um, there's strong evidence for what scientists call sperm competition in our species, which means that um, the sort of competition, there, there is evolutionary competition between males to impregnate females, but the competition in some species happens on an individual level. Uh, we could say a macro level between individual males. This is how it works with gorillas, for example, where the males will fight and the winner mates with the females. So this is a a species where there's a clear alpha male. The males that don't win that fight are expelled from the group. And so you have a harem-based mating system with one dominant male, the silverback, uh, and a group of females and uh, juveniles. So it's the same thing with elks, for example, many many different animals, uh, sea lions and so on. So in these kinds of uh, harem-based systems, the males are generally about twice the size of the females because uh, the largest, strongest male generally wins the battle with the other males, so his genes get passed along. So size and strength become... uh, determinants and and there's sort of a runaway evolutionary uh, drift there. Um, But where there is sperm competition, the competition between males takes place between their sperm cells, not between the individuals. And so you, in those species, you have males that are uh, roughly 20, 15 to 20% larger than the females. And you have anatomical uh, changes like the, the shape of the penis, the size of the penis, the amount of sperm in the ejaculate, um, all sorts of indications this is going on. And so you end up with a species that looks different. And humans, bonobos, and chimps all look the same relatively in this sense. Um, External testicles and relatively larger penis and so on and so forth. So I do think that chimps and bonobos are extremely relevant Uh, when we're talking about human evolutionary behavior. And, uh, you know, so sure, I stand by everything that we said in Sex at Dawn. I think the argument is very solid. And, you know, a lot of people have poo-pooed the book, which is, you know, to be expected when you write something controversial and um, emotionally charged like that. But to my knowledge, no one's really disproven any of the central arguments that we presented in the book. I really want to dive into this for a bit more. The, what are the exact differences between the structures of uh, bonobos versus chimpanzees? 
And what, what does that indicate for us? What, what can we learn from that? You mean the social structures? More about the sexual structures, because my understanding is that chimpanzee is a bit more like an alpha male type of structure, and the bonobos are more of like a female dominant run society. And I would just love to hear it from you, especially yeah. for someone that hasn't uh, read the book yet. And I definitely recommend for y'all that are listening to dive into this topic because I find it so fascinating. Yeah, well, it's true. Bonobos and chimps are extremely closely related, but there are um, pretty dramatic differences in their social organ. Chimpanzees uh, are quite violent. Um, there is a dominant male hierarchy. Males dominate females and uh, juveniles. Um, the, the chimpanzee politics is interesting because it's not necessarily the biggest, strongest male that dominates as with gorillas, for example. Uh, it's sort of the cleverest male. Um, they form coalitions of dominance. Um, and so you might have an old, clever kind of experienced male with a few, uh, you know, henchmen and they run the show. Uh, whereas, you know, with gorillas, of course, you have one dominant male and every other male gets kicked out. Um, with bonobos, uh, they are referred to as female dominant. The females bond together. So even though the females are smaller than the males, um, if a male gets out of line, all the females will attack him. Uh, bite him, uh, they can get quite aggressive. Um, but despite the fact that they they can be aggressive if males get out of line, um, there's never been a witnessed case of uh, murder. No bonobo has ever been seen to kill another bonobo. There's never been a case that anyone has seen a bonobo rape another bonobo and there's no infanticide. Uh, this isn't in the wild or in captivity. So, uh, whereas with chimpanzees, these things are relatively common. Um, so, yeah, they they look very they look so similar that unless you're an expert, you wouldn't be able to tell them apart. But their behavior is extremely different. If you to just to illustrate the point, um, if you have a a group of chimpanzees in a zoo in a, an enclosure and you throw uh let's say you throw a package of food in there uh now this causes stress because now there's this food how are we gonna you know who's gonna get it what's gonna happen so what would happen with the chimpanzees is the dominant male or or the coalition of dominant males would immediately take the food um, they might share a little bit of it with a female who happens to be ovulating, which means she's sexually receptive, um, but everyone else is out of luck. If you throw the same package of food into an enclosure of bonobos, they experience the same stress. Oh my God, what's going to happen? What they do when they're stressed, bonobos, is they have sex. So they would all have sex with each other and then they would share the food. Um, so that's the difference be between the major difference between chimps and bonobos. Uh, Franz Duvall, who's probably the leading primatologist in the world who studied chimps and bonobos the most, describes it as uh, the difference is chimps use violence to get sex 
bonobos use sex to avoid violence. Yeah, that that to me is so intriguing, and I I, I can relate to it in the way that growing up in Georgia in the South, playing baseball and sports, it was much more of a chimpanzee culture. And then going to like places like Encinitas or Maui or Boulder, where like polyamory is not only quite normal, but it's almost like yeah, it's like celebrated. And it almost seems, and, and actually, I'm also interested in the eating differences because those, that chimpanzee, southern baseball, alpha male culture, I kind of feel like it's a much more meat-fueled diet, whereas these kind of hippie type of communes <laughs> are more of a, a vegetarian-based um, fuel diet. And, I, and, I, and I, is that true as well for the chimpanzees Don't and the bonobos? I mean, this just seems so striking to me. It's almost like if men came from Mars and women came from Venus, maybe like meat eaters came from chimpanzees and vegans came from bonobos. I mean, this is like, it kind of boggles my mind. Yeah, uh, it doesn't really play out that way, though. Both <laughs> chimps and bonobos eat meat when it's available. So... <laughs> Unfortunately, that's uh, it doesn't it doesn't work out so neatly. Um, yeah, I I get emails occasionally from people from vegetarians and vegans who, um, you know, want to convince me that humans are naturally vegetarians, um, but I just don't think that argument holds any water at all. Um, largely because both chimps and bonobos eat meat when it's available. Yeah, yeah, it's it's because I I agree. I I think it's a much healthier idea to eat meat when it's available than not at all because of some sort of dietary dogma. Um, but at the same time, I, it's just like there's something there for me. There's something that I get intrigued by. I, um, are you what's what are you working on currently? Are you is there another book coming out? Is it connected to these topics? Well, I'm so curious about that too. No, I'm taking a break from books. Uh, I've got. Uh... You know, my podcast is my main gig these days, and uh, I uh, try to live a hunter-gatherer life in the sense that I don't work a lot. I spend a lot of time reading and thinking and hanging out and going for walks and enjoying nature. And, uh, you know, I try to keep my expenses low and... uh, you know, a lot of free time. So I've got a couple of books, you know, that I think about and sort of flushing out in my mind and taking notes and stuff, but um, nothing under contract, no deadlines, no pressure. I kind of, I like to take a break. I'm not, you know, I'm not um, very ambitious. So, um, I like to just live a rich life. I don't really care about getting rich or famous or any of that stuff. Well, it seems that way. It seems like you're um, acting as an investigative journalist when it calls to you. And I think the uh, notes that you've taken for humanity to ponder upon are super inspiring and probably quite polarizing. Um, You mentioned emails of, 
people that are wanting to convince you that a vegetarian-based diet is natural. What about the, do you ever, or do you get people that are angry about, it's particularly sex at dawn, maybe people that are um, in long-term monogamous relationships that were trained from an early age to believe that's the only way for humans? I'm curious, do, do you get people reaching out and trying to convince you otherwise or well, what's oh, your... Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, not as much now the book's been out, you know, over 10 years. So most of that's died down, but sure. I've gotten emails from people threatening to sue me because their partner uh, left them after reading sex at dawn. And I guess that was my fault. Um, you know, I've, uh, I I co-authored the book with my wife, who's a psychiatrist and, um, you know, people have claimed that I made her up, that she doesn't really exist, um, that I just sort of put her on the cover as a way to give myself cover, uh, you know, uh, as a white cisgendered man. And I mean, it's the craziness never ends. But um, yeah, it's been really interesting becoming a public uh, figure to some extent and just seeing uh, what that's like, because before that book came out, I was teaching English in Barcelona, just, you know, totally chilling and unknown. And then the book came out, it's in I don't know, 25 languages or something and was a New York times bestseller. And, you know, I've been on TV and documentaries and, you know, just on Rogan's show a bunch and, uh, it's, it's really interesting to, that's for me, that's been personally a, a very interesting experience. Um, but it's not something that I really necessarily want to hold on to. I'm happy to let that fade away. <laughs> yeah. Do you have any, um, perspectives or advice maybe from someone that's experiencing something similar? I actually have a feeling a lot of people that have gotten into the Breaking Neural podcast or the book or the lifestyle have found themselves in the spotlight suddenly and maybe experiencing something similar to you. How, how have you dealt with that? Any tools or tricks? Um, well, I think it's, it's a strange time to be alive. I, you know, I was born in 1962 so the internet didn't exist until I was well into my 30s. Um, and I, I'm really grateful for that. And then I didn't have any kind of money or, you know, attention coming at me until I was uh, into my 40s. And um, so my advice is wait, <laughs> if you can. Uh, figure out who you are before you start getting um, these distorting uh, influences in your life because uh, it can really fuck you up. And if you don't have a clear sense of who you are um, and you start to become dependent upon the uh, attention of strangers, then then you're in trouble because when they withdraw that attention or uh, when they use that attention to try to hurt you, you're very vulnerable to that. So I think it's important to sort of get your feet on the ground before that those waves start to come at you. 
if possible. And if that's not possible, um, I, I just think it's really important to understand that these things are illusions and they don't matter. And, uh, you know, you have to sort of convince yourself of that, despite the fact that so many voices around you are telling you that they're all that matters. Well, yeah, I think that's solid, solid um, foundation of brick rather than sand. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's a quote from um, Henry David Thoreau that I, I think I read when I was a teenager and I've always sort of held on to it, which is that a man's wealth is best measured by the things he can do without. And um, I think that that makes sense economically, you know, like I was saying before, I spent a lot of time just chilling out and doing whatever I want to do because I don't need a lot. I, my overhead is very low. I spent half the year living in my van Right now I'm renting a little house. Uh, you know, I could spend all my money and rent a bigger house, but why? Then I'd have to work harder, you know, or I'd have to trade my time and my freedom. So uh, I keep my physical life pretty humble. Um, and that allows me to have time because ultimately the only currencies in life if our time and money and money's replaceable and time isn't. So I think it's really important that people value their time as highly as, as they can and uh, not worry about the money so much. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for the reminder. Um, you mentioned your podcast and how you're excited about that for someone that's never heard an episode first of all how do they find it and um are there any episodes in particular that you would recommend someone that hasn't listened to it yet uh, they can find everything on my website which is that chrisryan.com and uh the podcast is called tangentially speaking i just um posted the 456th episode i think yesterday Wow. Congratulations. Holy moly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's a lot. Um, yeah. It's uh, as far as what episodes I'd recommend, just go through the archives and, and see what interests you because I have, you know, there's no real theme. Uh, I just chat with people who I find to be interesting. And um, a lot of them are just people I meet in life. They're not necessarily famous. Um, I just finished recording an episode uh, this, this morning, actually, with Dean Radin, who's one of the world's best known researchers into uh, parapsychology, telepathy, psychokinesis, all that sort of stuff. Really interesting dude. Um, I've had, you know, scientists, porn stars, authors, a lot of comedians, um, you know, the sex workers of various kinds, uh, I guess because of Sex at Dawn, I, I have access to that world. Um, and I sort of became a, a bit of a, an honorary member of the comedian community in Los Angeles when I was living there, you know, through uh, my friendship with Joe Rogan and Duncan Trussell and Moshe Kasher and a lot, of, you know, Ari Shafir, a lot of those guys. Um, so yeah, all, all sorts of people, some eccentrics. Uh, there's a guy I had on who's um, 
uh, rattlesnake expert. All he really cares about is rattlesnakes. He lives in a trailer in the desert in New Mexico, crawls around studying snakes. He's been bit, uh, I think he said 15 times um, by rattlesnakes, uh, just all sorts of um, people. And to me, it's, it, it's like, it, it's a, it, I, I just love talking to people. I hitchhiked a lot when I was a kid. I, or in college and stuff, I hitchhiked across North America a few times. And to me, the podcast is kind of like hitchhiking. You just sort of get into the car and you don't know who you're going to be with, but you know, you're going to be sitting there with them for an hour or two. And uh, I just really enjoy that feeling of getting to know somebody. And uh, I like, it's nice to have an audience along for the ride. Yeah, I can relate to that as a lot as well. And that's amazing. Who in the heavens is that uh, rattlesnake guy? How do I find that episode? That sounds awesome. Yeah, I don't remember his name, but there's a there's a search uh, thing. So if you just go to the website and search rattlesnake, it'll pop okay. up. Okay, awesome, awesome. Well, on that note, of all these 456 inspiring uh, hitchhikes you've taken, um, what about uh, books? you've been inspired by i mean I, so many people have been inspired by your books what about some of the your uh, the most inspiring books for you mm, well uh i guess the book that comes to mind when people ask me you know books that change your life or something there's a book i read in my i guess i was in my 20s when i read it the first time and i read it I think I've read it five times over the years, and it's called The Unbearable Lightness of Being. It's a pretty well-known book by Milan Kundera. Um, it's, and I guess the reason I kept going back to it, first of all, I love the way it's written. It's um, a very unique style where he's telling a story, but every once in a while he breaks away and speaks directly to you as the reader. Um, he's telling a story about these characters and what's going on. And then he'll turn and he'll say, maybe you're wondering why I made Thomas a, a brain surgeon. Well, it's because when I was a kid, my father had a friend who was a brain surgeon and blah, blah, blah. So it's sort of a story within a story, um, which I find to be a very compelling authorial style. But the book is largely about um, the, the issues that men and women often confront when we try to uh, form relationships with each other, how we look at things differently, experience sexuality differently. Um, and he, he places this story of a romantic couple within a historical moment where some of the things that are happening between the man and woman are also happening between communism and capitalism. And so it's a very, it's a very nuanced um, novel. And I felt like it taught me a lot about women and um, how to manage relationships. Uh, it was also made into a film starring Daniel Day-Lewis and Juliette Pinoche, you know, fascinating. What was the name of the movie? The Unbearable Lightness of Being. Wow, so the same name in the book. I didn't know Daniel. I, Daniel Day Lewis is arguably my favorite actor, actually. Yeah, I don't think I've seen it, that one. So relatively early in his career, 
Uh, I think it was maybe his third film, second or third film. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it's a, it's, it gets into this question of um, weight, you know, because the unbearable lightness, right? So the weight, weight can sometimes be a really good thing. Like the weight of your lover's body that you feel, you know, or the, the weight of a very meaningful experience or relationship in your life. And then other times weight weighs you down. It's a burden. It, it wears you out. And so he sort of, and on the other hand, lightness can be a wonderful thing. It can be freedom. It can be um, opportunity, but then lightness can also be emptiness and, and meaninglessness, right? So when we're trying to negotiate our lives, we're always sort of um, flowing between these, these two poles of, of do I want weight and significance or do I want freedom and lightness? And, you know, it's, it's uh, life is a conundrum and that book really captures it well, I think. Wow. Cool. Thank you for the recommendation. That reminds me of one of my favorite songs called the uh, weight of sound from stick figure. So I'll, I'll also let's popcorn those in there. What about any game changing songs or albums and or um, movies and or TV shows. And yeah. then I'm also very curious about how you manage your relationship with your wife. Uh, well, geez, I mean, there's <laughs> so much, dude, I'm almost 60. So I've read a lot of books, seen a lot of movies. I mean, we could talk forever about that stuff. Um, I think my favorite album of all time, I would, it's so hard to say, but one of them for sure is Dark Side of the Moon, which uh, by Pink Floyd, which is just fucking genius, both musically and lyrically. And, and it gets into a lot of this stuff. It's about time and money. And in fact, there are songs called Time and another song called Money on the album. Uh, it's about you know, looking back at your life and wondering where all the time went and uh, the experience of aging uh, and mysticism. It's, it's just uh, all encompassing. And you really, anyone who's listening to this now who hasn't heard Dark Side of the Moon, uh, if you smoke weed, I highly recommend you get high, you put on some headphones, you turn off the lights, you lie back and you listen to that album from beginning to end. That's the way to do it. It'll blow your mind, guaranteed. <laughs> thank you um, for that. I haven't yeah. officially done that before, so thank you. That's the way to do it. It's it's a journey, right? One song leads into the next. It's the whole thing is one coherent whole. It's not something you pull up on Spotify and listen to, you know, one or two songs. That's not what it's about. It's a forty minute experience. So I would be curious uh, real quickly on that yeah. note. Have you heard of um, Dub Side of the Moon by Long Beach Dub All Stars? Or Long, I forget who it is, but it's Dub Side of the Moon. It, is it uh, like a reggae version? Yeah, exactly. I forget the name of the group all of a sudden. but Yeah, yeah. In fact, it, I first heard of that because it was sampled in... Um, uh, what's this guy's name? He's a rapper. He anyway, he sampled uh, some of their music from Dark Side or their you know cover of Dark Side of the Moon in one of his raps. And uh, I was like, "What the hell is that? That's awesome!" Yeah, it's pretty good. Yeah, I like that kind of stuff. I like 
covers that sort of pull out um, some quality that that the original artist uh, didn't explore. That's, yeah, it's uh, called the uh, Easy Star All Stars, and um, wow, that is a cool album, and I'm and I'm excited to take your advice on the original. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so uh, movies, amazing, you know, so many great movies. I, I can't, I mean, Chinatown is a, one of the most phenomenal films you'll ever see. Jack Nicholson, Roman Polanski. Um, but yeah, I mean, so many. I love documentaries. I, I love Werner Herzog's work. Um, you know, a lot of people have seen Grizzly Man, uh, which is a great movie, but He's got so many bizarre, strange movies that he's made. And um, yeah, I saw there's a film he did about Antarctica that's really interesting called Encounters at the End of the World, um, which is basically about the people who are uh, working in Antarctica at the station down there and how they ended up there and what kind of people end up working at Antarctica. Pretty cool. So, yeah. Um, and as far as my relationships go, I don't really talk about them publicly very much um, because, uh, you know, when Casilda and I wrote Sex at Dawn, we agreed that we didn't want to be, you know, poster children or examples for any particular uh, relationship type. So, um, and Sex at Dawn, there's no, you know, some people think it's a book about polyamory or about um, advocating some particular lifestyle. And it really isn't. It's just a book about um, the science of human sexual evolution. And um, there's no advice at all in the book other than that we should be honest with ourselves about our desires and that that understanding should be based upon uh, an honest scientific um, view of, of our species. And, and I think that the mainstream view of our species that monogamy is natural for us makes people feel ashamed and guilty and um, that uh, there's something wrong with them if they feel sexually attracted to someone other than their partner. And, um, you know, what we were trying to demonstrate in that book is there's nothing the least bit wrong with you if you feel sexually attracted to people other than your partner. It just means you're a homo sapiens. This is built into the DNA of our species. Uh, what you choose to do about it is totally up to you. Um, but, you know, as I say, sort of tying together two threads of this conversation, um, you know, you can, I, I view monogamy as being similar to vegetarianism, uh, which is, you know, it, it can make sense for people. It can be very healthy for people. It can be ethically um, uh, sort of necessary uh, for some people who, you know, just don't want to eat animals. I get that. Uh, I love animals. Um but just because you've decided to be a vegetarian doesn't mean bacon stops smelling good. And uh, the reason bacon smells good is because this, our species has eaten meat forever. And so uh, you can make decisions about how to respond to your appetites 
but that doesn't make the appetite suddenly disappear. Um, so I think that was the point of the book to try to educate people about why you feel the way you feel, not what you should do about it. That was a great, uh, I love the idea about a vegetarians think bacon smells good. <laughs> Oh, that's so good. Uh, thank you for everything here. Do you, uh, is there anything you want to ask? And is there anything you want to include that we have not? No, I, I think I'm good. Thank you for the opportunity to talk to your audience. Yes. Thank you for being on the show. And you know, it's interesting. I have a, with a previous podcast guest that's been on the show twice, his name's Wes Atkinson. Uh, he's definitely a hunter. And, um, he recently, we had a, we had a meetup. We're having another one here in Boulder. I'm not sure if there's any crazy reason you want to come down Friday, but we're going to be sharing some bison that he hunted. Um, but he also, I remember last time we had one of these, he shared uh, pronghorn that he had killed in Creststone. Have you seen any pronghorn out there? Oh yeah. They're all around. Yeah. Uh, I hear they taste kind of sagey because that's all they eat out here. Um, but yeah, there's a herd of elk uh, right outside of town that sort of wanders through and pronghorn antelope and uh, mountain lions and bears and all sorts of bobcats and all sorts of stuff here. Yeah, amazing lands that we're blessed to be stewarding. Um, the pronghorn is so intriguing to me because I've uh, recently launched a dietary supplement brand where um, we're encapsulating freeze-dried elk liver and freeze-dried bison liver and um, marketing them as like a multi, the original multivitamin. And, um, you know, bison being the biggest animal that's indigenous to this land. And then the pronghorn being the fastest. Um, and I find it so intriguing how the only people that I have talked to that seem to know anything about pronghorn are trophy hunters. And they're just in the meantime, the fastest animal that, uh, that lives on this land. I, I just, I'm, kind of like, wow, there's something here. So I'm actually going to think about going on a pronghorn hunt with Wes in October. I'm here in Colorado. So if you or someone that's listening might be interested, we might have some space. It'd be awesome to do that if you're interested, Chris. <laughs> yeah, thanks. That, uh, yeah, I was, I was up uh, north of, um, uh, right up near the border with Wyoming. And there are a lot of pronghorn up there. I was hanging out with some people, some uh, people who uh, work at a natural reserve there. And they told me that the reason pronghorns are so fast is that they evolved uh, together with saber-toothed tigers. And um, so they were, they, they developed that speed to evade the tigers. And now, of course, the tigers are extinct in North America, so they don't really need that much speed anymore, but it's just uh, an evolutionary leftover kind of a remnant yeah i find that so amazing i find that so amazing because that's what uh one of the things we're focusing on at tribe vitamins is getting people to eat as the ultimate predator so like eat bison liver like eat but my understanding is when wolf packs or certain predators take down an animal like that the liver is one of the first things to get eaten by the higher hierarchy animals and that's kind of like so amazing to me to think like, wow, that's the reason they're so fast because the saber tooth tiger. And I have heard stories around that. And I, the funny thing is, though, that I don't know if there's even a way to procure that meat legally because I think they're all wild. Um, hunters can go out and get one with a tag 
but I don't think there's any suppliers of that meat, which is a very intriguing to me thing and thing to me as well. And that's actually exactly where we'll be doing the hunt is right there on the border. We probably you saw those herds. So mm-hmm. I'm excited. I'm excited to learn more about this. I definitely think that's one thing uh, with hunting where, I mean, I've heard all kinds of stories of people feeling connected to their ancestors, especially like through like plant medicine ceremonies and such. Um, I've definitely probably felt it the most when I saw my daughter born and um, hunting, hunting actually. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind, of, kind of ineffable in a way. Yeah. Well, thanks for, uh, t- uh, you know, touching the surface with me of the potentially ineffable and continuously doing it. And I'm, I'm stoked for people to check into your podcast and your books and maybe we'll get to uh, meet each other uh, soon in person over a hot spring or a hunt someday. <laughs> yeah. Thanks just so much for you, for you, for you being you, man. Thanks, Daniel. I enjoyed it. All right. Take care. Keep breaking normal. All right. You too. Bye-bye. If the first sign of shame is hiding, the first step out of shame is not hiding. Chapter six, feature your flaws. Disclaimer. I've facilitated this exercise a handful of times in the mixed company of men and women. As my wife's and my relationship evolved, we currently feel complete with this particular exercise. We no longer practice this at our events either. With that said, given how much I believe in the liberating power of this exercise and the miraculous transformations I've seen through this process, I feel it is integral for me to include this section for you to decide how it may or may not fit into your healing. For a final hearts up, this process has the ability to catalyze immense amounts of suppressed emotions to surface in a heartbeat. If you feel the call to participate or facilitate, consider starting with a group of your same sex and or teaming up with professionals that understand the depth of what this can bring up. What better way to follow up this progression of bearing all than to actually get naked? This exercise might be a one-offer, something you do just once in your life and reap the benefits of for the rest of your days. Like the other exercises, the genius is in its simplicity. We get naked and look at each other's bodies, and after a while, we talk about them. I've seen the shyest, most timid, and insecure of people transform in under five minutes. I've seen the light come back in their eyes. I've seen women cry and shake and struggle to take off their clothes as though invisible shackles were preventing them from doing so, only to jump around naked and ecstatic moments later. From inside the matrix, this probably sounds crazy or perverted. It's a good thing then that we're not in the matrix, but rather on the path of discovery. To us, crazy is a compliment because what commonly goes by normal is from another perspective, pretty absurd. What is perverted about something we all share in common? We all have bodies. There's no way around it. So why should it be normal to feel shame about them or to think there's something wrong with them, meaning there's something wrong with us if they don't look a certain way? Why is it normal to put so much energy into neurotically hiding our bodies from other people, dressing up in order to fit in? If we all have butts and we all go poop, why are we so compulsively private about it, sneaking away to do it out of sight and covering up our scent afterward? 
Why, if we all have penises and vaginas, does typing those words bring up some resistance in me? As I imagine, reading those words brings up some resistance in you. So you're promoting nudism? We are not promoting nudism, nor are we condemning it. We are leveraging a taboo our culture has around the body in order to awaken the spirit that lives within it, or, in some cases, the spirit that is trapped within it. Some of us got so hung up in the past on our physical appearance and games of comparison that we wrecked our self-confidence and became alienated from ourselves. The sooner we get over all that, the sooner we get out of our own way. If the first sign of shame is hiding, the first step out of shame is not hiding. For Adam and Eve, that means removing the fig leaves and stepping out of the shadows. For us, it means taking our clothes off, wiping away the mask and makeup, and exposing the parts of our bodies we are most self-conscious about. If you can't put your naked self out there, how will you put your work or ideas out there? How will you accept and promote yourself if you think yourself is something that needs to be hidden, covered up, or packaged appropriately according to the likes and dislikes of others? Rarely is anyone ready for this exercise. As soon as we announce it, people seem to get jittery. Now, we're, we're going to do it right now, but yes, right now. No one is required to participate, but even the skeptics linger. A part of their mind is sounding the alarm, telling them to run and hide. Another part is curious and says, wait a minute. After all, how often do we have the opportunity to see a bunch of strangers naked in real life? How often do we see anyone naked in our day-to-day -day life, especially in a non-pornographic, non-sexual way? How often do we get naked in front of others? For a lot of us, the answer is never, or at least not for a long time since the innocence of our early years. Maybe we catch a glimpse of our own nakedness for a hot second before and after our morning shower, but after that, it's into a uniform based on our social function or some image we want to project. The uniform reinforces a function-based identity, or FBI. The naked exercise is effective because the mere mention of it, even before the clothes come off, produces a litany of feelings. Everything from flushed cheeks to queasy stomachs to chattering teeth. Some people begin to shake. Others, feeling the sudden urge to pee, sneak away out of sight. Our palms sweat, our hearts pound. It's a scary step. Many people are insecure about their bodies, almost as if they're ashamed to have one. They worry that people will judge. They worry they are ugly, fat, flawed, pasty, pimply, dark, different, abnormal, and overall undesirable. As a man, having just got out of cold water, you might think your manhood will appear smaller than normal. As a woman, you might feel acutely self-conscious of your problem areas, and having internalized years of commercials and magazines, tell yourself they make you less beautiful. But either way, man or woman, it can be scary to reveal yourself in front of others. What will they think of you based on your human body suit? Will they judge you as ugly or unworthy? Will they reject you or make fun of you? To be naked in front of other people is to let them see you as you are, rather than who you pretend to be. A lot of us fear that who we are is too much or not enough. Those fears are not bad. They heighten the contrast, raise your awareness, and give the exercise more power. It's about observing those fears, feeling them, and going forward anyway. That's how you find freedom. 
Just like polar plunging, you can breathe deep and still get in the water, or in this case, naked. The first time I did it, the amount of adrenaline pumping through my body made me feel like I could flip a car. I felt cold and shaky, and yet, like everyone else, I tried to stand there nonchalant. What I noticed, though, was that the harder we all tried to act natural, the funnier and the more foolish we actually looked. There we were, butt naked among strangers we'd only recently met, averting our eyes from one another, but reluctantly interested, but trying to act like we weren't. All we really wanted to do was check out everyone's body, especially their private parts, to see what they were like compared with ours. Within about five seconds of having our clothes off, we had made a map of these comparisons and ranked ourselves among them. It's interesting. As long as we had a clothes on, we could talk and laugh and interact with one another. We could do handstands and give hugs or high fives. As soon as the clothes came off, however, as soon as we got naked, Suddenly, we could barely look at one another. It felt somehow weird. For a full minute, it was quiet and what some might call awkward. No one spoke. No one made eye contact. We didn't look because, well, we couldn't see. Our vision was clouded with the pictures our minds projected, stories of our flaws and inadequacies. Literally, we couldn't get over ourselves. For me, those flaws start <clears throat> started with my feet. They're flat. In the past, I thought they were ugly, and I was self-conscious about showing them to other people. They kind of looked like hobbit feet, and I guess I thought they made me look unathletic or something. Next were my legs, which were always strong, but didn't look like what I associate with strength. They're skinny and bowed out. I used to think they made me look goofy. If I still do think that, I tell myself that goofy is a great thing. Above my legs, my butt. Like my feet, it's also a little flat. A part of me used to wish, and maybe still does, that my butt was bigger, more rounded and muscular, like the kind of butts I see on billboards. I was never really worried or self-conscious about my penis. My chest, though, that's an area where I used to compare myself to other people. My pecs are ripped and have great definition, but I used to think they were too rounded and maybe a little soft-looking. Sometimes, from the right or wrong angle, they looked like man boobs. These problem areas dominated my attention in those first couple minutes, and I think the same was true for the rest of the group. The urge to cover up and hide was strong, but paradoxically, the thing that kept us from doing so was exactly the thing we were there to get over, concerned for what other people think of us. As excited as we were to be liberated from overcaring how others see us, we didn't want to be seen as weak or quitters. After a while, we seemed to grow out of it enough to at least look in the direction of others. We felt our curiosity rising. As it did, it ran into another layer of so-called awkwardness and discomfort. Sure, we could look in their general direction, but could we really observe and see them? The awkwardness, again, was the thing we were there to get over. We wanted to see, of course we wanted to see, but we didn't want other people to see we wanted to see. We didn't want to appear to be too interested. Instead of honestly and unabashedly looking, then we stole quick glances before returning our gaze to eye level. It was this weird, restrictive energy that seemed to control us so long as it remained unsaid. Thankfully, my brother, who is great at sharing his vulnerability, called it out, named the elephant, meaning he said aloud the thing we were all thinking but not saying. We laughed because we knew it was true. Afterward, our curiosity rose even higher. 
We felt freer, more at ease, able to look around, reflect, appreciate one another. I'm imagining right now there are some readers whose minds immediately go to sex. Maybe because a part of my mind goes immediately to sex and therefore think the exercise is inherently sexual, but that's not the case. If your mind jumps to sex, it might be because you're preoccupied with sex, which might mean you're in resistance to it, which isn't a bad thing. But it is something to notice and be aware of rather than jump unwittingly to projected conclusions. The less you're aware of it, as I'll say again and again, the more it exercises control over you. With that said, one guy got an erection, and having no pants to tuck it under, he sat there with it more or less on display. What could he do? Should he have felt shame about it? Should we? There's this impulse to immediately label and categorize and file it away. But checking that impulse allowed him and us the chance to sit there with our feelings and thoughts about it. Is there anything else more natural? How can we be sure that getting an erection is weirder than not getting one? Or that the weirdness isn't our own projection? So just like with the initial restrictive energy against looking, rather than ignore the erection and let it become an unspoken elephant in the room, we called attention to it. We acknowledged what was happening, accepted it, and moved through it. We made fun of it. Not in a malicious way, but literally. We made it fun. Fun comfortable, that is. I noticed your erection, and I imagine... The point of the exercise, like the point of this book and life, is whatever you make it. For me, it was a mirror, and a mirror shows you what your mind wants to see. A part of my mind wanted to see sex, but another part wanted to see comparison and critique, the way I subconsciously critiqued myself. Still another part, which I tend to consider deeper than the previous two, saw similarities. I realized that looking at a group of naked people is almost the same as looking at a group of clothed people. From head to toe, there are differences and variations, but regardless, say, of what color top a person is wearing, you still recognize it as a shirt. Similarly, no matter what shape someone is or what their butt looks like, you still recognize them as human. We all look a little different to tell each other apart. As many people as there are, there are that many different ears, belly buttons, genitals, knees, hips, and elbows. There is no standard of how we should all look, no cookie cutter that we should fit, and no justification, none whatsoever, for statements like, this person is more attractive than that person. At most, at the very most, you can say, this person is more attractive to me than that person. Or from my perspective, so-and-so looks closer to the image on the front cover of certain magazines than someone else. It's a way of comparing that doesn't force you to choose one over the other. To my mind, that's a truer interpretation of reality. It is appreciating difference, not ironing it out. Attraction is funny. Sometimes we're attracted to unexpected things, which exercises like this one make clear. You might find that the people you think you're going to be attracted to or who you tell yourself you should be attracted to aren't the same ones you feel attracted to once the clothes come off. Should and shouldn't, however, are concepts of the mind, whereas attraction, like inspiration, is a full-body function of the heart, body, mind, and soul. Like the spontaneous erections mentioned above, that attraction is the physiological equivalent of inspiration. And a lot of people have made a habit in the past of ignoring it, because according to this type of dominating, self-fulfilling story they tell themselves, that inspiration came from somewhere it shouldn't have, and is lower or worse 
or less than a rational, logical, or ultra-spiritual mindset. Think about it. Erections aren't deliberate. They don't necessarily happen because we consciously will them to. Arousal, for the most part, might be beyond our conscious control, and to feel shame about it reflects our deepest attitude towards ourselves. This is one of the unintended benefits of the exercise, to stop ignoring the things that speak to you and accepting whatever it is that inspires or attracts or arouses you, you accept the parts of yourself, perhaps your deepest parts, that are inspired and attracted and aroused. Those are the parts you're afraid of, not your flaws and not your weaknesses. You're afraid of those parts because they lead to your hidden strengths, which take you to places you haven't even imagined yet, beyond the limits in your head. Instead of building inspiration around your so-called life, that is, what happens to fit in, build life around your inspiration and have the faith to go where it leads you. The second part of the exercise is standing front and center. More alarms go off, more feelings race through you. Good feelings, because remember, they're all good, so as long as you feel them. You observe the alarms, observe the feelings, and breathe through them. Play with them, make them fun. This is probably the most vulnerable moment of the exercise, and the rarest thing of all is for a person to volunteer to go first and then walk up, turn around, stand perfectly still, and meet the audience's gaze. More likely, the urge to hide kicks into overdrive. Eventually, someone goes first. Someone has to go first. Since I've already shown you my body above, let's give someone else a chance. Let's say it's a woman. Let's say she's 5'6 and 140 pounds. Are you judging based on that information alone? You would think that standing naked front and center is as naked and exposed as someone can get. But then there's that outer armor, that shield of muscle and skin. This woman, you notice, is still trying to hide. Her shoulders are slumped. Her skin seems flexed. She's curled inward, taking very shallow breaths, barely filling her lungs. It's as if she's trying to appear small and inconsequential, or so you imagine. She crosses her arms, maybe to cover her belly or chest. Or maybe she talks a lot and exaggerates her hand gestures as a way of distracting our eyes. You notice that she's turned at an angle, not quite giving us a full frontal, as she's avoiding letting us see her thighs or hips. You notice that she moves side to side, making herself a moving target. Rather than meet our gaze, she looks down at her own body as though she's disassociating from it, trying to identify herself with us as examiners, as others. In other words, she's squirming, as if under a magnifying glass. She's visibly nervous, maybe on the verge of tears. Logically, she knows she's naked and that we can see everything, and that for her to stand at an angle only calls our attention to whatever it is she might be hiding. The question, then, is who is she hiding from? The answer, I believe, is herself, her inner critic, which more likely is an internalized critic, her mother, a friend from school, a celebrity, a billboard, a magazine, etc. Somewhere along the way, many places along the way, she listened to a serpent that told her she was flawed and unattractive, that convinced her that the value of who she was as a person, as a soul, could somehow be measured by the appearance of her body. We might say it's all in her head, but in reality, it's not that easy. 
subconsciously, she's become identified with her body, and that low self-worth is both a refuge and a trap. A refuge because she figures that if she's not worth anything, she can therefore do nothing. So why try anything at all? Better to stay put and accept her lot. A trap because when you ask her to turn her hips and reveal what she wants to conceal, it's almost as if she can't, as if physically she can't perform the motion. There is nothing external restraining her, but the resistance has taken over on the inside and confines her with invisible shackles. For her to turn her hips requires such exertion, such force of will, such letting go, I've seen this happen, that her body shakes, even though from the outside there's nothing holding her back. It's not so much that she doesn't want us to see it. She knows we can see it. It's that she doesn't want to see us see it, because as long as that's the case, she subconsciously has an out which prevents her from having to identify and own it. Energetically, she shifts away from it. She doesn't want to go near her thighs, doesn't even want to acknowledge them. That whole area is physically and emotionally quarantined, off limits, making her a prisoner in her own skin. I think what's happening in this woman is that the self-defeating stories are breaking down. The internalized critic knows that once she turns her hips, and sees the group doesn't flat out reject her as a person, then that critic is dead in the water, and she can take back the other things it has claimed. Outward shaking is evidence of internal struggle. Our role as observers is to encourage her in that struggle. She will likely hide her face when she finally turns to face us, but eventually she'll look up and watch us for a reaction to see how we're taking it, how we're taking her. She's imagined our reaction many times already, and that imagination is based off reactions she's received in the past from parents, peers, or even herself. But really, she's the one doing it. She's the one doing the seeing and judging in the mirror of her own mind. In the past, she experienced something she imagined was judgment, and on some level, she judged that judgment to be correct and internalized it. Now, judgment is what she looks for. Her self-talk is ridicule. Shame and scorn are what she expects. I imagine she is surprised then when she looks up and meets our gaze. As she watches us watch her, as she sees us see her, she feels what we feel and sees what we see. It's not negative judgment. It's not a focus on her flaws. We're naked too and preoccupied by our own vulnerability. More importantly, we've realized that this part of the exercise is about us as much as it is about her. The healing in both places is simultaneous. In the audience, you realize that if you aren't struck by the beauty of her bravery, by the sheer display of emotions, the rawness of her, it might be an indication that you don't yet accept your own bravery, your own emotions and rawness, and that you're still trying to hide and avoid yourself. You see that the more she tries to hide certain parts of herself, the more obvious those parts are. That can catalyze you to think about the parts of yourself that you try to hide. In the past, you may have looked for the flaws in other people in order to give yourself the peace of writing them off. Curiously enough, that's exactly how you treated yourself. Looking in the mirror, you consciously or subconsciously criticized every little thing. Tried to write yourself off so that you could continue to play it safe and small. But now you see, 
flaws don't discredit people. They endear people. You wouldn't throw someone away because they're different or imperfect. So why throw away yourself? Ultimately, in looking at her, you realize you're looking at yourself and that any judgments that come up about her are a reflection of the ones you hold within. What happens next is hard to describe. As we in the audience hold this space, all that restrictive energy dissipates. She slips into a strangely new, strangely familiar suit, her own body. Our presence bearing witness allows her to reclaim herself flaw by flaw, problem area by problem area. By exposing the things she wants to hide, she becomes less self-conscious about those things and they cease to weigh down her psyche. Right before our eyes, she acknowledges and accepts the area she internally resisted and shut down. She slides past the invisible quarantine, taming, mastering the part of herself that in the past cared so much what other people thought of her that it convinced her to hide who she was. As she becomes more open and aligned, she visibly relaxes, her body loosens up, and the tension she was holding goes slack. Her spine straightens, her breath deepens, and you might notice you feel more attracted to her than you did a moment ago. No surprise there, she stopped dimming her light. Our deepest self desires to be known because in the beginning it lived naked and unashamed. It knows that true freedom lives in vulnerability and it craves the boundlessness of not hiding. You are more than your body. The way to realize it is to reveal it, not to read about it, not to think about it, and not to say you should know better, but to do it.